Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast and welcome to episode 102. Uh, today, my guest is Sarah Casada, and she works with Women of Welcome doing immigration and refugee work. She's also the author of Love Undocumented. So in her book, she tells her story of some of her first encounters with the immigration process and walking through that as she comes to understand more and more about the immigration process and also refugees as well. This is a great episode. We, uh, we dive into some of the different nuances of immigration and it's really a 101. So some of this, if you're familiar with immigration and refugee work, a lot of this might be um, repeat for you, but I think you'll be encouraged by her story and some of the things that she shares with me, um, the work that's being done through Women of Welcome. Hopefully, for those of you who are new and you'll learn something, you'll learn something from this episode, from the things that she shares. Uh, and she also shares some resources of, hey, I have a congregation and I want to talk about this issue more or at least uh, intellectually, intellectually, like I'm actually educated about it. So, uh, resources there. I'll put those in the show notes. I'll also put a link to her book. Very good. I really appreciate it's part memoir, part, uh, educational, I would say. Uh, anyway, we have a, I have a couple more guests coming. I'm doing a little segment on immigration and refugee work. And I have, Brice Dendrud, uh, who's the director of Women of Welcome, coming to the podcast, and a couple of other guests. So watch for those. In the meantime, enjoy this episode. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different. So welcome to the podcast. I do appreciate you accepting my invitation. Hey, will you talk a little bit about, because um, right now you're in Georgia and yes. I've been reading, I've been reading your book. So you were originally born in Kentucky. Were you born? I was born in Tennessee, but I moved to Kentucky when I was in high school. So yes, both of those are home for me. What, what are you doing right now? Where are you serving? Where are you doing? I, like, I like to call it kingdom work. So however you want to define that, you know, for you. Yeah, it is interesting to define. And so I very much would not have called what I'm doing now kingdom work when I was younger. But I think the more that I've grown into it, I see where God's been at work in kind of my pathway. I currently... One of the areas that I'm super involved in related to uh, immigration and immigration advocacy, um, I obviously do writing and some advocacy on, on social media, but I also help um, lead a community called Women of Welcome, which is an online community for uh, particularly Christian women entering into conversations about immigrants and refugees, um, doing education and community and helping us move towards kind of a biblical perspective on these topics and have a safe place to have conversations where we're not necessarily, many many of us don't have places in our day-to-day -day life for that. At the same time, I also am a small business owner and I lead a, a small 
content marketing agency for nonprofits. And I um, have the privilege of leading a, a dynamite team that gets to work with lots of nonprofits doing good in the world and us helping them tell their story and connect with the people who support them. And so for me, those have been ways I always have been connected to writing and words and all of those types of things. And so being able to use that for um, organizations and, and causes that I care about feels really special and feels like getting to be a part of God's bigger movement in the world. Yeah, I saw the Ruby Brick on your um, email and I'm like, what is this? I didn't realize this is your business. So you started this? So I started it about eight years ago. Um, I was working in nonprofit work at the time. And anyone who's worked in nonprofits knows you wear a lot of hats. And I was like, well, what if I wore the same hat for a lot of different people? And so started freelancing, doing writing and social media and all of that kinds of communications um, for nonprofits. And it was just something that it turned out was a, a true need for a lot of organizations and uh, had the kind of joy of watching that grow over the last eight years. Well, that's brilliant. I love that. And uh, that is very much a needed and it is, it is kingdom work. I mean, so many nonprofits are just doing incredible, incredible work. And, you know, the, the church can't do it all. Um, and so, I mean, I'm talking about the local church. So we have to be the church out in the world um, doing the kingdom work. And uh, women of welcome, I do follow. So I follow you on Instagram and I love the stuff that you do and um, educating people online. And I think I've seen, have you guys done like some like small groups where you bring people in and educate them? So we have several different resources. We do um, create Bible studies twice a year that groups do gather and go walk through those together. Sometimes it's people who are already a small group, already know each other, but just use our resources. And then sometimes there are women who actually gather, use our website to connect with other women interested in studying that as well. We do have an education portal that you can walk through. It has, I wanna say 17 videos answering different common questions and walking through them from a biblical perspective. We also have documentaries and other resources that, that are open for people to use. Um, I've been reading your book, Love Undocumented, and of course, you tell your story in there of how, how you get involved in immigration. What happens so often to people, you know, in our lifetime, right? We start off doing one thing and then life, God, uh, all of the above, you know, kind of takes us in a different direction. So you tell your story about how you, and how you, first how you ended up in California and then how that started this path towards working uh, in the immigration field? Yeah, my life definitely, If I mean, for the simple fact that I work a lot in social media, which didn't really exist when I was in college, there's a whole host of reasons why things have not gone according to, to my college plan. But early in my college days, I sort of had a, a vision, if you will, that I was going into some type of ministry thought I would grow up and be a youth pastor's wife. I guess that was my plan was to aspire to be <laughs> the wife of a youth pastor. And, and, but then got particularly into kind of recreation ministry and some of those, I don't know if that's an actual term, but that's like, I really wanted to lead a rec center. I was starting to get really interested in topics of working across 
race and um, income and different things. So after my freshman year of college, I ended up taking a year off of school to do a full-time volunteer program, which was actually in the city of Atlanta, which is all these years. Now that's where I live again. But I, I lived there for a year at that time when I was 19, volunteering full-time. And it was it was really a crash course in, in what life is like in the US for different kinds of people um, and different experiences and different lived experiences that people were having that were very different from my own that I was allowed to be included in and to witness. And that ignited something really deep in me around issues of justice and faith and um, cross-cultural ministry and began wanting to do that type of, create that type of opportunity for others. And so after I, I returned to college after that, uh, went to grad school, and then ended up taking a job at a Christian university in California, where they did a similar type of education program. So students lived with immigrant families, they volunteered um, during their semester, and then they took lots of courses on these topics that were so interesting to me around social issues and race and ethnicity and and how how we as people of faith can can engage which is how I ended up in California because <laughs> that job was there and I had finished grad school in Kentucky and so um, it was a it was a big move for sure so while you were in California you were working with people who were had immigrate immigrated to the country and Kristen, your story in your book, you tell the story of your first experience meeting somebody who ha- who is undocumented, who does he eventually becomes your husband, right? Spoiler, I yes. I know, sorry, <laughs> it's quite all right. It's, it's not a secret. He is my husband. Actually, I I want to do I want to talk about that before we get into you know a little bit more about what immigration looks like, because there was something that you talk about on page twenty six of your book. And you're having coffee with this guy who eventually becomes your husband. Oh, you were ta- so you're talking about he texts you and says he wants asked if you want to grab some coffee. English is his second language, so he, obviously there's spelling errors in the text and stuff like that. And in in this, you're you're really wrestling in this paragraph with about oh my gosh, this is well I have will we have anything in common? Um, like I don't even have a pe- passport. You say that in there. I don't even have a passport. Uh, so there's a couple of things that really struck me. One, I appreciated your authenticity and your vulnerability of what we would say today, right, is tell, tell me you're white without telling me you're white. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? So I, so I, I want to highlight that because there's a tendency for us to pretend like we know everything because we don't want to be vulnerable. We, we don't want to talk about what we don't know. Um, and so I appreciated you sharing that. And one of the questions that kind of brought up to me and later on in your book was, I think there's a hesitancy for us because we don't want to offend people. Um, like I'm afraid to get involved because I'm sure I'm going to do something wrong, say something mm-hmm. wrong. I'm going to embarrass them or I'm going to embarrass myself. So will you speak a little bit into that? Like, how did you work through that? How did you process that? Um, What are ways that other people can work through that fear? 
Yeah, so I for sure knew almost nothing about immigration or anything related to it. I mean, this might sound funny. I can't remember if this is in the book or not, but I've talked about this quite a bit of when I when I applied for that job in California, one of the questions in my interview, it wasn't quite this direct, but it was essentially like, what are your views on immigration? Because I was part of the role was working with immigrant families. And I said, well, you know, I think that um, we should be welcoming like to new people and people should follow the law. Then I was like, and there you go. (laughs) Simple as that. And I literally had no idea anything about immigration beyond those sort of two values of like, we should be welcoming and people should follow the law. I had no idea what those laws were. I had no idea you know, I assumed it was similar to, you know, updating your driver's license when you move to a new address. It was like, oh, you just need to go to an office, fill out some paperwork. And so when we're on our, I think our third date and my now husband, Billy, kind of very, in a very circumvent way, it basically finally explains to me that he, he is undocumented you know, my reaction is just like, well, I hope he gets that fixed. Like he just needs to take half a day off and go to the embassy and work that out. And I literally believed it was that simple because I still work in these areas around, around immigration. And, you know, there's, it's so often that people say, well, why don't they just become legal or why don't they just become citizens? I mean, which even, you know, helps me realize now, like we don't often even have a a broad understanding of the difference between legal residence and citizenship, which is a whole other rigmarole that kind of people have to go through. But I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I really was just operating. And those, I still have those same values that we should be welcoming and laws are important. <laughs> the, the values behind what I thought then haven't really changed, but the nuance around them, around the specific issue have changed. And I think I often see you know, people of faith, women, especially like not, not knowing how to engage this issue. And so just kind of thinking, well, then I don't want to get involved in it. Cause what if I don't agree when I get involved or what if I say something wrong or do something wrong? Or what if I, the risks feel bigger than, than the, the, the kind of, I guess, reward of, of, of stepping in. And so I think there's a couple of things I would say about that is that many of us don't realize that there are people in our life who are undocumented because there is so much shame and secrecy around people's immigration status. Um, I think there's been a kind of a caricature of who an undocumented person is that many of us assume, well, that that type of person isn't in my life, so I must not know anyone. And I think many people would be surprised to find that there are people in their churches, in their neighborhoods, in their schools that are out of status and trying to figure out our immigration system. And the book Immigration Made Easy has hundreds and hundreds of pages. I think it's like over 600 pages. And so for most of us, if that's what it takes to have the easy understanding of immigration, it's too much. We have enough going on with kids and church and work and laundry and all the things to be able to, you know, breeze through a 600 page book about immigration. I think we have to enter this topic with our values of how important it is to welcome. And that means often just listening and being present to people. I think 
we can feel this pressure to fix things. And so there's this like, well, if I don't know how to fix it, why would I even take that first step? And my encouragement is to take that first step, you know, admit what you don't know and listen and be present. And usually the next step will, will reveal itself, whatever, whatever that is in your specific situation, whether that's calling Congress or whether that's teaching ESL or starting some sort of small group in your community, you know, you'll know what the next right thing is for you in those moments. But I think it's really fear that keeps us from engaging in something we don't know. We want to be, we want to be in charge of the situation. We want to know what's happening. We want to know what we're going to do. And sometimes all we can really do is to take that first step, take that risk and be present. Yeah. The, the idea of risk, you know, risk and reward, right? Like we wanted to balance out and it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't balance out and there's no way to know. You know, we have a, a friend who's here from, she's been here, I think six years now. And uh, she came seeking asylum, religious asylum. She is here seeking asylum, but she still, after six years has not gotten her interview. Wow. So it's really well, long. It is, you know, it seems like it should be easy that you, you know, you, you land. And I mean, she did all of the things, you know, she took a plane here and landed and went straight to where she was supposed to go to say, I'm here seeking asylum. And then that's it. So it's, yeah, it is a, a long, complicated process. Uh, you talk about, and I'm, this is probably common language for people who know anything about immigration, but you talk about the, the three ways that people come is blood, sweat, and tears, mm -hmm. uh, which I liked that that breakdown. So will you just highlight what that is. What when we when we talk about this idea of that people immigrate via the three main ways, blood, sweat, and tears. What does that mean? Yeah. So you know, for me, back before I got involved, and I thought, well, people just they need to kind of do it the right way. They need to get in line. They need to go through the process. And what I didn't know at the time was that there are kind of these three main categories. And so blood is a close relative who is a US citizen. And so that's typically spouse or parent are the two kind of really, you're gonna, that's gonna be like the quickest and surest ways, but there's a little bit of a extension out around brothers and sisters and children. So if you have um, someone in your family, that's the blood relationship that is a US citizen, they can apply for you basically, essentially as your sponsor. Similarly, sweat is when a U.S. company is your sponsor. And so that's pre predominantly for industries that need very specific skills that um, they have made a case cannot be found in the U.S. labor pool. And so they are sponsoring someone to immigrate to work for them. And then the third is tiers, which is which sort of encompasses our refugee and asylee pro programs. Um, these are folks who are fleeing persecution based on religion, gender, nationality, um, political association, some type of category that they are being persecuted and then are seeking, excuse me, that's asylum. Refugee can, can be for other reasons, such as war and natural disasters, some of the reasons that people are fleeing. When you get into those categories, 
there's exceptions to the rules in those categories too. Yes. Um, and so sometimes people think, well, what about like students who come or migrant labor? And so I do just want to distinct, there's, there's a distinction between folks that are allowed temporarily in the U.S., like to go to school or to work for a season versus these categories, which are around people who are allowed to legally immigrate on a more permanent basis. We have, we have lots of different types of temporary programs for all sorts of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. We don't have to dive into, but but there is sometimes some confusion around the ways that people are predominantly allowed to legally come because what happens then when we think about people who are, you know, a common reason we hear of people coming to the U.S. is that they're seeking a better life for their kids. Well, that doesn't fall into blood, sweat, or tears. And so there's often not, you know, unless they do qualify for asylum or something like that, there's often not an actual path for people who are fleeing poverty or seeking new opportunities. And that is something that many of us associate with our immigration system, that people throughout history have come to the U.S., you know, looking for a fresh start and new opportunities. And currently that's not one, uh, you know, there's not a pathway for that. Yeah. And, and that's interesting because you, in your book, you talk about push-pull um, which, and I appreciated that part of, you know, that part of your book, because it was, it was a simple explanation of the push-pull factors that bring people here. So they're either pushed here, from, so obviously it's something driving them here, or they're being pulled here by other, other things. So like student visas, those kind of things. Also, I want to talk about this sociology thing that you did in your class, because you, you highlight this in your book. And then I want to talk a little bit about ways you think that the church is doing it, things doing things well when it comes to immigration and ways that we can improve. Uh, I don't want to start with ways we can improve because it feels like that's really, we could be here all day for that. Anyway, on page 68, you talk about leading a sociology class, a discussion group that you use called the Star Power Game. So we talk about what that's, what that is, what is the Star Power Game? And then how does that correlate into our society and our culture and the things that we see here. So the star power game, I did not create it, but I did lead it in my sociology classes. And essentially it was, um, I was teaching college students. So it's like anything to get folks awake and moving is always like a positive. So every student in the class would get an envelope and it had, can't remember the details, but different, different colored squares um, in their, in their envelope. And the squares were, you know, were assigned values and we kind of had this like open trading in the in the class. So people had a few minutes to go around and trade their squares and try to kind of get more than they had before, you know. And after that first round, we that you divide up based on kind of groups of how how much value you have in your envelope at the end of that trading round. And then there's kind of this twist because then the group that has the most value in their envelopes is allowed to create new rules for the game. And almost without exception, those students create rules vastly in their favor. And then we would do round two and it would kind of follow in that same pattern. And, and within very few rounds, that top group has decimated the rest of the class because they've made rules like, you can't say no to my trade or you can't, you know, they made their own rules, however logical or whatnot. Um, that helped increase the value of their envelopes. And 
it's a tricky, it's a tricky classroom project to lead because people get really angry. No one likes to feel taken advantage of. No one likes to feel exploited. So we always have to leave time to debrief it and discuss. But to me, especially as a person of faith, it's, it shines such a light on our natural tendency of self-protection and I guess self-aggrandizement of like, we are going to skew things in our own favor. And so, you know, I mentioned at the start of this conversation of, I believe I hold these values to be true of welcoming people and also laws are important, but especially when it comes to immigration, there's a reminder that the people making the laws, not everyone is speaking into those laws and the people who are making them are making them for their own benefit. You know, I guess you can argue whether or not that is what people should be doing in government. I think most people would actually support it, that that's what government should be doing is making laws in their own favor. However, looking at it from a faith perspective, there's a recognition from my perspective that there are people who then are suffering the consequences, who are kind of bearing the weight of some of those laws. And so while law and order is important, there's also a recognition that law and order is not law and order for everyone. And so how do we engage that in meaningful ways to create environments where all people made in God's image are thriving and flourishing and not just a small group that is in charge of the laws? It is not an easy conversation. There is not an easy answer to it. Um, But I think when I think about my younger version of myself, it was kind of like, well, the law is the law and that's the end of the conversation without recognizing some of the nuance of who's speaking into the laws, who's creating the laws, who do the laws benefit and what happens to those it doesn't benefit. Yeah, the law is important, but then you have to ask the question, is the law just? And Mm -hmm. then we have to ask the question, okay, whose um, definition of justice, right? So it is very nuanced. And if you're raised in a, where you don't ask questions about the law, it makes it, even more complicated. And, and, and maybe really that's what we know Jesus came to save us from our sins. But he also came to show us that we should be asking some questions about the laws that are made, you know. And laws are often changing. And I think, you know, I don't always think of it that way of like laws are being refined. They're being challenged. I mean, that's what so much of our court system about is challenging laws that are on the books. And, and so, I want it to be really simple. I want to say, well, the law is the law and there you go, moving on. But it's not that simple. And it's also not that finite. Just because something is a law currently doesn't mean it will be the law forever. And how do we continue to refine those in ways that are meaningful? I'm in between sermon series. So Sunday I preached from the lectionary and the lectionary was Luke chapter 14 and Jesus is having he's celebrating the sabbath at the house of a pharisee and there's a man there and it says and he's suffering from and of course from the context of it it's like he was invited to this thing people who invited jesus invited this person know they know this person and they know what jesus can do and they're more concerned with the rules than they are with his suffering so he asked the question right he goes is it lawful to heal on the sabbath so he's really asking the question about, okay, let's talk about these rules. Are these rules, who do these rules benefit? You know, um, is it time to reevaluate these rules? You know, I think we go straight into the whole, oh, they were trying, 
the whole Sabbath thing, but we miss the whole point of Jesus is asking questions about the laws and wanting us to reevaluate the laws because you're working in a, not specifically a local church. Talk about ways that you see that the church, I'm going to use churches with a big C here, right? Um, where we're getting things right when it comes with immigration and, and refugees. I mean, I think it's super encouraging to see all of the ways that the church has engaged in the work of caring for people in need. And so, I mean, you see people in churches who are involved in transitional foster care, which is for unaccompanied minors that have entered the country and need a place to stay. You see folks involved in sponsoring and resettling refugees, you know, getting apartments ready and doing those kinds of things. You see folks teaching English as a second language. You see people, you know, protesting and, and standing up and advocating for different laws to be passed. And so I feel like from a broad spectrum, I see the church engaging in every aspect of of getting involved with immigration and refugee work, just even from befriending new neighbors and new Americans who are settling in our communities. And, you know, how can we, you know, carpool to school or those kinds of things, right? And I think Women of Welcome has been such an encouraging community in that there are so many women who are taking that first step of educating themselves or asking questions and figuring out how to get involved. And then there's also women in that community who have been very involved or who are helping lead projects. We had a, a woman in our community after Afghan refugees were evacuating, there were you know, people staying on military bases across the country. And she lived near a military base, had some connection and had discovered that one of the things that families were struggling with was making tea in their own homes because by the time they would take it from the cafeteria or mess hall to the place where they were staying, it would be cold. And so she did this big campaign kind of on her own to collect thermoses. And, and we saw women all from all over the country in our community, you know, go on Amazon and donate thermoses. And she took them to these families so that they could, you know, maintain some of their comfort traditions and all of that in their in the places where they were dwelling even for a temporary time. So there's a million stories like that where I feel like we get to see the church being the hands and feet of Christ in their welcome. And I think churches do that collectively as well. I know anytime there are families who participate in foster care, you know, a lot of times their church community is coming right alongside them, helping them with all of the emotional and physical needs that that decision entails. And so there's enough work to go around. And I think that there's a lot of beautiful examples of how the people of God are at work. I love that story. Gave me, it gave me goosebumps. Um, <laughs> just thinking about uh, being far from home, you know, I mean, like I went, we went on a, a mission, short-term mission trip a few years ago to the Philippines and just the little things that you, you know, mm -hmm. by the end of two weeks, you're like, I want a really good cup of coffee. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, I can't imagine being uh, thousands of miles knowing you're, you probably never go home. And something this as little as 
a cup of tea, bringing comfort, you know, mm-hmm. as you sit with your family and have breakfast or lunch or dinner or afternoon tea or whatever. What are some simple ways and think about what are some simple ways that, that the church can improve what they're doing or that people can start to get involved. So, but literally having no idea where to start. That's a great question. I think one of the first things I would encourage, whether an individual or, you know, a broader group like a congregation is to really look around and see what else is already happening in your area and how you can support that. So World Re- um, World Relief is is one of the founding partners of Women of Welcome. And so I'm I'm familiar with their work in different places across the country, but they do, you know, just really great work at resettling refugees. And so if you're in an area where their offices are, I think that's a great place to start. It's like, how can we come alongside? How, where do you need volunteers? Where do you need support? And there's scores of other organizations around the country that you can, um, you know, hopefully that there's something in your area and that's a great place to start. I think the other place, you know, I'm always amazed. There's lots of folks who will say, well, there's no immigrants in my area. There's, there's just nobody. I once had someone who lived in LA tell me there were no immigrants in her, her area. And I thought, well, that's probably not true because it's Los Angeles. Uh, But I think for many of us, we're very caught up in our own routines, our own rhythms, our own communities. And there is oftentimes an invisibility for new Americans that is is real in how they experience being here. And so I always encourage, you know, especially if there's not a group you can immediately get involved with, to really talk to God about opening your eyes to who in your community might be new or might not be from there and might benefit from connection and community because immigrating can be extremely lonely. And I think I, I talk about that some in my book because I think that was one of the things that almost struck me the most when I met my husband was just the deep loneliness, you know, coming from a small country with where all of his family lived and he had known everybody, <laughs> you know, growing up and going to schools and just the the kind of shock of coming to a new place. You know, I think in American culture, a lot of us move a lot. And so there's a diff, you know, sometimes maybe that's not, we don't have maybe as strong of ties to certain places, but I think for many folks who come to the U.S., that might be a new experience for them. Um, and so I think one place to start is simply saying, you know, God opened my eyes to who in my community is new and and is maybe looking for a friend or looking for support in some kind of way that I can get involved in. And then the third thing I'll say is around stepping into educating ourselves. And that doesn't mean we have to know everything about immigration, but I think, you know, a Women of Welcome Bible Study, my book hopefully is a great resource. You know, I think there are ways to start stepping in to immigration and refugee work that can be a really good first step to then look and see where God is leading next. Yeah. Around here, I would think that people would, I mean, I'm just outside of Detroit. So <laughs> I mean, we have, and I'm 10, a 10 minute drive from Dearborn. So we have, which has been traditionally called uh, little Baghdad because we have such a large population of people from Middle Eastern countries that live in this area. So yeah, the idea that you don't know any immigrants 
there is a there is a blindness that we just kind of go through. You you go to the same bank, you go to the same gas station, you go to the same grocery store, and you get your stuff and you put it in your car and you just don't pay attention really even to who's around you. So do you have any words of advice or wisdom for people? Yeah. So I think sometimes the idea of crossing cultures, crossing social political, all these barriers that keep us separated from others. There is an element of, of being uncomfortable. And I would say in U.S. culture, we don't like to be uncomfortable. And we don't like to be vulnerable in a setting. And what I mean by that is I think sometimes one of the greatest acts of hospitality we can offer others is to accept invitations into their space. And so a lot of times when we think about welcoming immigrants, there can be a desire to have them come to our church or come to our home for dinner and different things. And we might even feel awkward that if somebody who maybe doesn't come from the same um, socioeconomic background of us invites us to their house for dinner, we might feel, well, we don't want to impose, we don't want to be a burden. But in actuality, there is a lot of kindness and it is a gift to accept an invitation from another person and to go into their space where they are comfortable and you are uncomfortable. And, you know, whether that's because we're asked to take off our shoes or we're asked not to take off our shoes or we're asked to eat foods that maybe we have never eaten before, or we're sitting in an environment where we don't know the language completely being spoken around us at all times, that there is a a humility and a gift of hospitality to step into that environment and allow yourself to be the uncomfortable one. And I think that's a real challenge for a lot of, a lot of us. We, you know, it's like, well, if I'm going to take this step and reach out and get to know someone who's different than me, I'll do that by having them in places I'm comfortable. And so I think that to me is kind of the invitation and the challenge is what does it look like to go to a Latino market in your community and buy some of your groceries there where you're supporting a local business owner, you're supporting the jobs that that business owner has created as an act of welcome, even though maybe they don't have everything you need or it's a little bit out of the way for you or whatnot, but that that in itself can be this small act of crossing these ways that just we naturally or unnaturally are divided in our society. but that recognizing our, our humanity binds us. And so how do we, if we are comfortable, step into something that's uncomfortable as an act of welcome? The idea about the, about the markets. So I love that. And yes, we, we do want we always want to invite somebody to our place, right? So that we have that sense of control and, and not wanting to impose also like, oh my goodness, I don't want to go. And they don't have much. Why would I want, why would I go and eat their food? That's rude, but really, um, them having that opportunity to serve us and introduce us to their culture is is profound so oh I was once invited to a graduation party for a high school student I'd never met in my entire life and I thought I was going to hyperventilate it seemed so inappropriate that I would go to but I was invited and my husband was like come on you know come on American girl like this is what we're going to do because we know this other person who knows them and they've invited us to their home of course we're going to say yes and I just thought this is this is a whole different ball game (laughs) than what I'm 
what I'm used to and what I'm familiar with, but also that's part of the beauty. And honestly, having married someone who's Guatemalan and lived adjacent to that culture in different ways throughout our marriage, it has helped me to be more, you know, I feel like I've taken some of the things that I've learned and experienced in those communities and been able to open up more of saying, of course, the more the merrier and this, you know, rather than some of the ways that maybe I was more, I don't know, locked down in some of my hospitality in the past. So I think there's, there's mutuality in true relationship. And so I think too often, you know, if we look to how can we serve immigrants and refugees without thinking about how can we be in a mutual relationship and miss those opportunities of ways that we can learn from each other is really, that's such a missed opportunity. And, and ultimately, I, I don't think it's going to benefit folks in either, in either camp very well. Yeah, you know, we started this conversation talking about like, how do you enter into something you don't know well, or like, how do we engage when we don't know what we don't know? And I think that some of that is a muscle. And the more we practice being in conversations or places or spaces where we don't know everything, which is weirdly countercultural today when we have the internet in our pocket and we can always seem like we know everything. We kind of have information overload. But practicing that muscle where we say, I don't know. I don't know what this means. I don't know how to do this. Can you show me? It's really a way to connect to people. And it's, it's very disarming, I think, than to hide behind kind of only being in places where we're comfortable and know everything. And I think that is true for our relationships, both cross-cultural and not cross-cultural, but I also think too, as we enter into new areas of, you know, topics like immigration that are unfamiliar to us, the more we, the more we step into that, the more, and the more practice we have, the more comfortable we feel saying, I didn't know that. Now I do. (laughs) I thank you for telling me that. Yeah. Sometimes we just have to be willing to laugh at ourselves and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, look like fools for Jesus. Because there's a lot worse things that could happen. Is there any other, anything about immigration that you feel like this is something that just gets overlooked that I, that my listeners would appreciate knowing more about or? You know, I think that there's so much in the news these days about immigration, which feels like such a big shift from my own personal experience, when I first started learning about immigration, I had barely heard much of anything about it. It was not a commonly talked about. It wasn't on on every news channel. Again, I mean, I already mentioned social media didn't exist <laughs> back then. But right now, I feel like immigration has this sort of interesting double-sided coin where it's like, we hear about it a lot, but we don't know much about it. Um, and I think you know, one thing I would just caution folks when we see it, what has been so difficult being connected to people who have immigrated and watching how unnuanced our news cycle can be. And And in a lot of ways, the ways that immigration and immigrants themselves are so often used as pawns in political kind of word wars. <laughs> I don't, I'm sure there's an actual word that I can't think of right now, but, um, and some of that is almost as simple as the fact that immigrants can't vote, right? And so when politicians are trying to garner support from people 
this is not a demographic that they quote unquote have to appease. And I think as people of faith, that tells you a lot about a person of, are they only caring about people who can give something back to them? And so I think when we see news headlines, particularly about immigrants, how do we step back and say, where is the nuance in this story? Who is benefiting from this take on this headline and who is not benefiting from it? You know, what, what is the, how is the same information being reported on a different news channel? And where, where is probably the bridge where those meet, right? And so I think for many people, immigration hasn't yet crossed into our personal realm not because it's not present around us, but because we either aren't aware or we have chosen not to engage. And so a lot of our actual connection to immigration is through news politics, you know, news pundits and politicians and these headlines. And so I think we want to make sure we're being discipled by God and the Bible and our spiritual community, not being discipled by our news channel. And so Maybe even a first step is just to simply pause when we hear those stories, name the fact that they're talking about people made in the image of God, and step back and question where the nuance is or is not, or maybe could be. Because I think that anytime we're talking about immigrants and refugees, we're talking about real people, very vulnerable people, people who have most likely experienced trauma in some form or fashion particularly given the fact that immigrating itself is almost, you know, can be somewhat traumatic. And so we don't want to ignore real people made in the image of God based on trying to jump in on this side or that side of a quote unquote issue, because it's not an issue. It's real people. Oh yeah. It's not an issue. I think we forget about the trauma aspect of it when we throw that word around so much these days, uh, we do use people for bait, for votes and remembering that they are human beings, not numbers and issues and, you know, a rung on a ladder or whatever it might be. Anyway, I appreciate uh, you sharing all of this. 